If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 16. I'll be reading from verse 10 on for a bit of context. Hear now the word of the Lord that is infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, we ask that you would bless it to our hearts and minds and wills. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to use your mind's eye for a moment, because, of course, we live in Texas, one, at least where we are, one of the flatter states in the Union. And this is an area in which, even though I've only been here a year, there's no trouble here, because I've lived in Michigan and Ohio. This is the places where you ski into valleys instead of off mountains. But imagine that you are driving somewhere in Colorado or California or Virginia, and you're driving up a mountain on one of those long, windy roads, right? And imagine that it's not a huge freeway with a lot of cars on it, but it's one of these small mountain, two-lane roads, 30 miles an hour. Now, as you're driving around, if you're like me, as you're going up and around and around, you don't want to be too close to the edge of that cliff, do you? You want to edge over the other way, especially if there's no guardrail. But there's something else, though, you need to realize, right? Because if it's two lanes, you can't get too far away from the cliff or what will happen. You'll be in the middle of oncoming traffic. You've got to strike a balance. That's a little bit of what Peter's doing for us this morning. We're traveling this long, winding road through Cappadocia and Galatia and Pontus and all of the places where God's people are pilgrims. And Peter has described for us in the previous 12 verses that we have looked at over several weeks how great a salvation we have been given. The great grace of God in who we are because of the work of God. And now Peter's going to shift his focus a little bit, and he's going to point us to action. He's going to point us to the result of what who we are is. And so we're going to strike a balance here between who we are and what we are to do. 
And so this morning, I would like us to see Peter's call to not just these strangers and pilgrims, but to you and to me. It's a call of a Christian to holiness. And so what I would like us to see is, in typical fashion, three things. The first is, I'd like to ask three questions. The first question is, who are we? Who are we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then the second question is, what does that mean we are to be? Because of who we are, what does that mean? What are we to do? And then the third question is the reason behind the action in point two, and that is, why are we to be that way? So, who, what, why, as it were. And let's take a look then here at verses 13 through 16. Well, who are we? This is the first question. And the first answer to this question, and again in typical fashion, there are three. The first answer to this question is, we are a people who rely on grace. That's who we are. Notice what Peter says. He begins verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've said it before, I will say it again. When you are reading through your Bible and you come to a therefore, the first thing that you should do is look back and see what the therefore is there for. And therefore here points us back to this entire long sentence. It isn't immediately obvious from the English, but actually verses 1 through 12 are actually one sentence in the Greek. One sentence that the main idea is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why he is to be blessed. And we are to look back at this lengthy section that Peter has just told us about what it means to be saved. It is relatively lengthy because we've taken, what, four to five weeks to look at it. All of the things that we've been talking about, that we are called by the Father, that we have a living hope, that that hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our salvation is guarded by the power of God, that it is reserved, that it is imperishable, that it is uncorruptible. All of these things are bound up in a small package, and the label on it is, therefore. So that's our context here. It ties all of this in. We are a people who rely on all of this that is set forth in the first 12 verses. And Peter makes it clear that that is where our hope is as Christians. Look at what he says. He says in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. This kind of hope Peter's already described for us is a living hope. It is alive in us. It causes us to be alive. And this hope is set on what? It is set on the grace of God. Now, the word here for hope needs a little bit of definition for us. Not because it's in Greek, not because it's in the Bible, but because I think we've kind of lost the idea of what hope is, really, in modern America. Hope today often means nothing more than a wish. We hear someone out in a coffee shop, I hope I win the lottery. Well, I sure hope it doesn't rain on my picnic. No. That's not what Peter means when he says hope. He doesn't say, set your wishful thoughts upon the grace that is to come to you. No, what he means by hope is an earnest expectation of a certain reward. 
You hope for something because you expect it to happen. It's like being with child and hoping for the day when you give birth. We just sort of expect it to come. We know it's going to take a little while, sometimes a little longer than we want, but it's going to get there. That's what the hope is of this grace. We know it's coming. It's sure. And that is what we are to set our hope upon. Is this how you live today? Is your daily life affected by this kind of hope? A sure certainty that the grace of God, as shown to us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is there, is real. That the reward is not as far off as we think it is. Is that the kind of hope that you have? I pray that it is. If it isn't, I would encourage you to cultivate that kind of hope. Don't have wishful thinking. Have a sure, certain hope. And this grace is not just any old kind of grace. It is a grace that is to be revealed to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is grace, as the old writer says, consummated in glory. That is what we are to set our hope upon. This grace that becomes glory. Why would Peter say this? It's because Peter wants his flock here, and you, and me, to focus on the end. He knows the trials and difficulties we're in. We've been over that ground. He says, put your hope on something sure. Look to the end. Look to when Jesus comes and you shall be like him. That is what we are, a people who, that is who we are. We are a people who rely on this kind of grace. But we're not just the people who rely on grace. We're also people who are in relationship with God. This grace does not come to us divorced from a vacuum out of nowhere. Because what does he say? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's acknowledging that we are in relationship with God. He calls us children. The Hebrew here is emphatic. It's a a Hebraism. It's Greek language, but it's steeped in Judaism. It's sons of obedience. People who are characterized as obedient and characterized as part of a family. You know, Peter could have described us in any way, in, in several different ways. Let me put it this way. Could he not have said, as obedient believers, as an obedient people of God, as faithful believers, Could he not? He deliberately chose the word children because he's pointing to a relationship that we have with God. You see, we have God as a loving father. Again, this is just Peter reiterating what he's already said in the first 12 verses. Notice that he says in verse 2 that we have a father who knows us before the foundation of the earth. And this father is also the father of Jesus, the one we await, the one on whom our hope is set. Our hope is set on this grace that is set forth in a relationship. This shouldn't surprise us. Those of us that have spent time studying the Shorter Catechism, or those of us who haven't and have just heard it, will understand that not only is justification, being right with God, an act of God's free grace, but also adoption, or being a child of God, is an act 
of God's free grace. You see, this is who we are. We are people marked by grace, not only in our standing with God, but in our relationship with God. And so, an exhortation then comes to us. Are you stumbling through the week, trying to be more accepted with God? Are you flipping through the bulletin and hoping, I hope the day can come when I can be a deacon. Then I'll be closer to God. No. You can never be more accepted with God than you are now if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a recipient of His grace. You are His child. There's no need to work your way into God's good graces. You are a child of God. But you are also, thirdly, called of God. For look at what he says in verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. There is a reminder from Peter that all of our actions and all of our being are a result of the work of God. This word for calling is the same word as we looked at earlier in this chapter for election. It reminds us that we are who we are because of what God has done. It's God's work, not ours. You see, before we even have the ability to obey, before we even hear the call to obedience from Peter, before we even know to be holy, God has already called us. His work precedes ours. It also reminds Peter's readers and us where we have come from. Peter will pick this up again in chapter 2 and verse 9. He will say that we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a reminder not only of the work of God, but of the power of God. Do you have that kind of hope from the power of God today? As you struggle at work, as you struggle raising children, as you try to learn math or biology, as you try to learn how to count. This is true from 4 to 84, from 2 to 92. You see, the power of God is what energizes us. The power of God is what gives us purpose and meaning. And that power is found in His calling. This is who we are. We are a people who are reliant on grace, who are children of the Heavenly Father, and who are called by God out of darkness and into light. And what does that mean, then, that we are to be? Well, this is where Peter gets down to brass tacks. You've heard me say it before, and I'm going to have multiple opportunities to repeat things here, that Peter is a very practical preacher-pastor. Remember, he's a fisherman. And so he's going to tell us how we are supposed to live, Think of it as if you were getting advice from your mechanic, right? He's going to tell you how the car works. He's not going to explain to you physics. He's going to tell you where to put the pieces and the parts and where to put the oil and how often to change it so that it runs well. And Peter says, this is who you are, so what you need to be, what you need to do, firstly, is be fixed upon God. Therefore, he says, knowing all of this, Prepare your minds for action. Now, I don't like to often say, well, I'm not really sure about this translation. This is not a bad translation, but I want to give you the vivid word picture that's behind this. It is correct to say, prepare your minds, but 
The original actually says something a bit odd. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Huh? Exactly. That's why prepare your minds. But there's a picture here. You see, Peter here is first beginning with the mind. He says, everything starts with the mind. Prepare yourself. And he uses a metaphor to get there. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. You need to picture ancient Israel. When people lived in clothes, they didn't wear business suits or dockers khakis, men. They wore robes. Long flowing robes. I think it was a little more than the fashion of the day. It was probably easier to produce. It's probably cooler in the hot weather, but that's what they wore. And if you were going to do any kind of strenuous activity, you needed to take the long flowing rope and pick it up and gird it, tie it around your waist so that you could use your legs actively. Ladies, you can help the men here. Have you ever tried to run in an ankle length dress? Not very fun, is it? Not, not only not very ladylike, not very efficient. You see, that's the same picture here. Peter says, you need to be ready with your mind. You need to be prepared for action. You need to be ready to move. We have images of this in the Bible. Do you remember the account of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Remember the, the prophets of Baal and the Lord showed that he was the true God and, the, and that Baal was not? And then it says that Ahab got on his chariot and he went to go down to Jezreel. But the Bible also says that Elijah girded up his robe and he ran. And he ran so fast he beat the chariot to that town. You see, he was ready for action. He was ready to move. He was girded up. It, it implies that being ready on an instant's notice. Do you remember in the story of the Exodus, chapter 12, when the Israelites are preparing to take the Passover, the Lord instructs the men to gird themselves for travel, to take those robes and to tie them up so that as soon as he gives the command, they can go. They are to be ready to go on an instant. That's the picture that you are to have with your mind as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be ready for action, ready to go at a moment's notice. But there's a third element that I think this metaphor of girding is helpful for. It reminds me of the story in John chapter 13. When our Lord takes his robe and he girds it up to wash the disciples' feet. You remember that story? It's also being prepared for service. It's having a mind marked by humility as well as action. Emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we are to be prepared. We're to have our minds set and ready for action. But it's not just that we are to be ready, as in ready, set, go. We're also to have another certain characteristic of mind. We are to be sober-minded. We lose the idea of this if we just think, okay, we're not supposed to be drunk. Okay, stay away from the fifth of whiskey. Don't drink a quart of NyQuil. All right, I'm ready to obey Peter's command. No. Being sober-minded for the Christian implies much more than not being inebriated. It implies not wandering in your mind. 
That hits a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? If I were to say to you, don't go out and get fall down drunk, that's one kind of an encouragement and exhortation. If I were to say to you, when you are involved in life and thinking especially on spiritual things, don't let your minds wander. That's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? I know it's true for me. You know during minute five, six, eight, ten of the pastoral prayer? Right? It's hard not to let your mind wander. And that shouldn't surprise us. There aren't some category of super-Christians who never wander their mind. It's a discipline that we are to engage in by preparing our mind. Peter gives practical application for this later. He says, we are to have our minds prepared and not wandering so that our prayers will be effectual. Chapter 4, verse 7. Having a mind that is fixed and not wandering is a way that you resist the devil. Chapter 5, verse 8. It's as if Peter is saying to you, let me give you some advice, Christian. Focus. Are you having difficulty in your prayer life? Focus. Are you beset by sin and temptation? Focus. Set your mind. Prepare it. This is the kind of mind that we are to have. But what we are also called to do is not just be prepared and prepared in mind. We're also called to be obedient. Look at verse 14. After we have already done this, after we have already prepared our mind and set our hope, as obedient children, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Now, you heard me say earlier that we begin with the mind. Not beginning with the mind is the error of the majority of evangelicalism. We don't want to think. We don't want to start with thinking. We want to start with a feeling. We want to start everywhere but thinking. This is a warning to us, especially as Reformed Christians. Because the error generally of Reformed Christians is not to fail to begin with the mind, but to start with the mind and to stay there, to put it in park for about an hour and a half. We learn something that's wonderful, and our response is, let me learn something else. Not, let me take that into action. Right? But you see, Peter won't let us do that. He's a practical man. He says, it's not enough to sit up in the ivory tower and take down good notes. You are to go out and to live a life that is marked by your mind being set on the hope. And that results in obedience. Now again, he uses this phrase, children of obedience. And I want you to know here that this is in marked opposition to another phrase in the Bible that you're probably very familiar with. Paul talks about those who are children of wrath. Those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are marked by disobedience. You see here, the emphasis on obedience is that it flows out of who we are. If I were lecturing in a a seminary, I might say, you see... The imperative always follows from the indicative. If I were speaking to my children, I would say, you see, what you do comes out of who you are. Always. You can't flip-flop that. You can't divorce that. That's what it means to be obedient. And notice the image that Peter gives us of a child. Look at how helpful that is to us. Let me ask you a question, parents. How many times... 
during those rare occasions when your children are disobedient. And when they are disobedient with a friend, let's say that they were pulling up flowers in the garden. And you say to them, what were you thinking pulling up the flowers? And the response is a hopeful, but Johnny did it. What's your response? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize Johnny was doing that. Okay. No, you've probably said something varying exactly on these words. I don't care what Johnny does. Johnny's not my son. I don't expect Johnny to obey me. I expect you to obey me. Right? We expect obedience from our children, not from strangers. Do you see, that again, the relationship there? We're to be obedient because we are children, not to be children. Because if being a child depended on obedience, my children would be my children for about 15 seconds. They wouldn't even be my children because I would have been my parents' child for about 15 seconds. You see, it doesn't depend on it. It's a sign. It is a visible fruit of being a child of God. But there's a third thing, though, in what we are to do and what we are to mean. It doesn't just mean being fixed and having our mind fixed upon God. It doesn't just mean being obedient. There's a third element here, and this sometimes is the most difficult for us as believers. It's called having proper priorities. Reorienting your priorities. You see, it's one thing to say that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's another thing to live your entire life based upon that premise. That's what we call, in technical, theological seminary terms, where the rubber meets the road. Having proper priorities. You see, because doing these things, being obedient, requires a radical shifting of likes and dislikes. What do I mean by that? It means not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It doesn't... It means... Not being given over to going out and being drunk in bars, like perhaps you were years ago. It doesn't mean neglecting your wife, like perhaps you did years ago. It doesn't mean neglecting your children, like you perhaps did. It doesn't mean gossiping, like perhaps you once did. It doesn't mean ignoring someone in need, like perhaps you once did. It means reorienting your priorities so they're not oriented around you. In other words, you like what God likes. And you dislike what God dislikes. A simple definition of doing God's will is doing the opposite of what sin makes us feel like we should do. That's a pretty simple definition. Doing God's will. There isn't some huge mystery involved with Ouija boards and and Urim and Thummim and all kinds of things. It's doing what God likes. Even when your sinful self desires to do something else. And you see, having the right priorities inevitably leads to action. See, again, Peter keeps pressing home this point of practical action. We are to reorient our priorities Seeing the end in mind, we are to set our hope fully, completely, the word is. Completely set your hope on the grace that is to be revealed when? 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look to the end, and that will reorient your actions. Let me give you an earthly example. You tell your children to go and pick up the house. Perhaps it's been one of those days where the house is a disaster. There's Legos and Lincoln Logs and books or baseball cards all over the place. Video game things, everything's all over the place. You say, pick it up. They'll go about it, they'll dutifully pick up some things, they'll get distracted, they'll do some other things, right? But if you say, I want all this house picked up, and as soon as it's picked up and done, we're going to go out and play catch. Or then we're going to go out for pizza. We can't go out until that's done, but that's what we're going to do. What kind of a reaction do you typically get from your children? You never saw anybody move so fast, right? It's because they're not thinking about the work of picking up. They were initially. Now all they can think about is what's coming at the end. That's the case for the Christian. Not in a sense of reward or bribery, but in a sense of we don't think about the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties now. We are focused upon the grace that is to be revealed to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our minds set on the end. Well, Peter has told us who we are. And he's also told us what that means we are to be. But it isn't sufficient oftentimes just to tell people what to do. If we're going to throw our entire minds and hearts into any action, whether it's a project at work or whether it's something around the house, we need to know a reason behind it, right? That's, I think, one of the the areas in which I have matured most from my teen years. Because when I was a teenager, my father would tell me things to do. I wouldn't know why the lawn had to be raked a certain way. I didn't know why one week I had to mow the lawn this way, and then one week the other way, and then one week on a diagonal. I didn't know why that was. I didn't care. What's the easiest way? Let me get through this. But now as I'm older, I realize there's a reason for these things. You mow the lawn in different directions so the grass stays healthy for example. Okay? So, once you have a reason, you can really throw yourself behind these things. And what Peter says is, is that the reason that we are to be the way we are to be and act the way we are to act is, first of all, to know God. The language in our passage points to a sequence. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Then, be sober-minded. And then set your hope on the grace that is to come. You see, the preparing your minds actually is a past tense verb. It's a participle. And the uh, being sober-minded is a verb that describes the way that you are supposed to be when you do the action of setting your hope. It's a sequence. It's almost a one, two, three. It's to lead us on. And the place that it is to lead us is to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole point of this is, is that we are to do what we are to do because we want to know Jesus. That's so much more of a reason than God's got some things for us to do before he calls us home. No. We're to set our minds and be obedient because we want to know Jesus. We might say this, ready, obey, hope. That's the sequence. 
That's what we are to do. We are to long to be with Jesus Christ. We are to want to know God because God is the one that has called us. You notice what he says here in verse 15 again? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Remember who the one is who has called you. He is sufficient. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-good. That is the God that we serve. This is the one that we seek to know more and more. And we seek to know Him through the preparation of our minds and through our actions. We want to know God. That is one of the main reasons that we obey. This is not something that we hear all the time. Practical Peter wants to press that point home to us. The second reason that we are to be that way is because of who God is. Notice what Peter says. It's very interesting. If you think about it in terms of the Bible as a handbook for living, it doesn't really make much sense. If I were going to write ten steps to a better life, I would say, be holy because your marriages will be more fruitful. Be holy because your life at work will be more pleasant. Be holy and obedient because your children will see and they will obey more and life will be more harmonious. Right? We can think of all kinds of other reasons. Peter doesn't go there at all. He says, be holy because God is holy. And if you'll notice, it's the only reason. He says, be holy because he who called you is holy. And he backs it up with a scripture. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, that is what we are to do. We are to be who we are because of who God is. God does not change. If you have ever wondered, perhaps, in a restless night... Why the book of Leviticus was included, as you flipped and looked through which hairs were white and were leprous and which weren't, and which, what you did with the, the skin of a bull of an offering. This quote here in Peter is taken absolutely verbatim from the Greek translation of Leviticus 19.2. Why is that important? It's because Peter is saying the same God that called Israel to be separate from everyone around them, to not partake in the sins of the nations, to not be idolatrous, to be covenant keepers, to be covenant keepers in the home and in their worship, to instruct their children, to be zealous for the worship of God, that same God is the one that calls you to be holy. This is who God is. God does not change And you see, holiness is not just separation. God is holy, and that is because He is distinct from us. He is separate. He is other. But we are also called to be holy. Do you see that? Holiness is not just being separate. This is another thing that we need to come to grips with in 21st century American Christianity. There is an aspect, an aspect to holiness that is separation. But it's not sufficient. It's a necessary but not sufficient action. What does that mean? It means you are not holy just because you listen to Christian music in a Christian coffee shop, in a Christian neighborhood, with a Christian book, with a Christian book cover, 
trying to be separate as much as possible from the world. Now, don't hear me saying it doesn't matter what you do, you could be just like the world. But my point is, it is a necessary but not a sufficient characteristic of holiness. It means not only being separate, but it means conforming to God. Because you see, things are holy because God says they are holy. There is no category of holiness that God just happens to say, yeah, agree with it, agree with it, agree with it, agree with it. 100%, go with it. God says, this is holy, this is not. And it makes it so. He says, I love this and I hate that. It's because of who God is that we are to be holy. We're to be that way not only to know God, not only because of who God is, but there's an immediate benefit to us too. Because if we are to be our own true selves, we must be holy. Notice what Peter says. We are to be holy in all our conduct. There is perhaps no more sweeping phrase in the Bible. In everything of our conduct. The word there means manner of life. Everything about you is to be marked off by God. You cannot compartmentalize your life. You cannot say, I will be holy and good and follow the Lord at home. But you know, business is business. And when I get in the office, it's dog eat dog. I leave my Bible in the house. You cannot say, I will be holy in my relationships at church and in my neighborhood as I want to be evangelical and I want to tell others about Jesus. But, you know, with my wife or with my husband, nah, not so important. You can't do it. It's every aspect of your life. There is no hypocrisy here, Peter says. I was listening this week to an old date myself, because it's actually a little older than me, an old Jim Croce song. It's kind of 60s and 70s mentality called Hey Tomorrow. And one of the lines is, Hey Tomorrow, I can't show you nothing. You've seen it all pass by your door. So many times I said I've been changing, then I slipped into patterns of what happened before. That is not the life of a Christian. That is a life of someone who is not empowered by God, who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though they try and make a change, they just keep falling back into old patterns over and over and over. The Christian relies upon God. He says, I will be holy, not because it looks good, not because I want to make my life easier, but because God is holy. We want to be like God. We want to be, don't we, conformed to the image of Christ. Don't we want to be like Jesus? Jesus is holy. If we want to be like Jesus, which is the best way to be, we must remember who we are, what Jesus has done for us. And remember then what that means we are to do, who we are to be. And that will remind us of the reason that we are to do this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word from your servant, Peter. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.